The open, honest question is really designed to, um, to really seek space for the truest answers to, to emerge. And so I think your impulse to ask a question rather than to pointedly make an observation or to quote, as you put it, my role, I'm going to step into my role. I'm going to tell the truth because that's what Nicole does. She tells the truth. If we can give the space to our colleagues to demonstrate that they're trying or where they're lost or where they're struggling or what their wishes are, then the group as a whole starts to arrive at this place of respect. You know, this reminds me of the second piece that you were talking, that you wanted to talk through, which is the notion of trust, you know, within the workplace. And um, what I often say to folks is that trust is not what the, trust is not the goal. Trust is the outcome. Trust is what happens when we create a safe, respectful, open, honest workplace. See, everybody says, we want trust. And I understand why they want trust. But they're aiming for the wrong thing. If I can create a place where the gap between stimulus and response is wide enough that I can turn around and demonstrate to you that I care about your feelings and I'll lower the volume, then my ability, your ability to trust that you, that I care about your feelings goes up because I've just demonstrated it. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. People often ask me, how do you know when coaching is working? And this is a tricky question to answer for a lot of reasons, particularly because it's different for everybody. But I do know the moment when I knew the coaching was working for me. Now, to be honest, I don't remember the specifics of the situation, but I do remember the feeling. You know that scene in The Matrix where Neo suddenly just gets it? Where his life view and his view of the world goes from things to moving lines of green code? And he suddenly goes from being hit by bullets to knowing how to control them. That's kind of how it felt, actually. The things, the bullets were flying furiously my way. And in the past, they would have hit and hit hard, rendering a true response seemingly beyond my control. And I think in this particular instance, now that I sort of recall it a bit more, it was something my co-founder had said, something that would often have knocked me to my knees in a spiral of self-doubt and questions of my own abilities as an entrepreneur as a man even. But this time, I could actually see the bullets coming, and I could see the choices I had. I didn't have to take them. I didn't have to spiral. I didn't have to live this way. I had a choice. There's a quote that's often used and stated, particularly here within Reboot. It's between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Now, this is often attributed to Viktor Frankl. 
And what I experienced in that moment and what I see so many clients experience in their own growth is a widening of that space. And all the work that we do, whether it be with a coach or a therapist in meditation or even in journaling, we are widening the gap between stimulus and response. And in widening that gap, we not only increase our capacity and ability to choose how we want to engage in situation in the world, but we're also increasing our ability to grow and to learn as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as humans. There's a never-ending bombardment of stimulus in our lives, and that will never change. But what can and does change is how we choose to respond to them. Our guest for the episode today comes with a question for Jerry. How do you find that space more frequently? Nicole Gleros is a partner at Techstars and has been mentoring, supporting, and investing in entrepreneurs for 15 years. In this conversation, Jerry and Nicole explore what it really means to widen that space and how the shift from reflexivity to greater choice actually starts with reflection. Enjoy. Being a CEO of a startup is hard. It can be very lonely with long hours, constant demands, never ending, unforgiving to-do lists. When do you take time to really step back and look at how things are going? for your organization, for your team, for yourself. How are you showing up as a leader? This April, reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO. In this retreat, you'll be led by the reboot team, Jim Marsden, Heather Jassy, Andy Krissinger, and me, to help you establish a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits. You'll create a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To apply and learn more about Reboot's April CEO Founder Bootcamp, go to reboot.io slash bootcamp. Hey, Nicole, it's good to see you. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for coming on the show. And and, um, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Nicole Gleros. I'm a partner at Techstars. Um, I've been with Techstars for many years, um, and we are, we're the, I think the term that we use is we're the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. So play a lot in the investment space and early stage startups, work um, a lot with entrepreneurs. And uh, prior to that, I was an entrepreneur myself. Um, but I, so I've been around the like early tech uh, internet startup space for probably 15 plus years. I was just remembering, I think, the first time we met. It was New York. Yep. That's right. I actually remember the content of our first conversation. Do you? I, now now you I got do. me. Well, um, it's. I would say that it's not often that I remember the content of a first conversation, mostly because of the sheer number of people that I talk to on a daily basis. Yeah, amen. <laughs> but the struggle that I was having was I was coming from Boulder yeah. to New York to run the Techstars program there. And I was very aware of the cultural difference between Boulder and New York. Yeah. And I was unsure how to... Um, really leverage the magic that that we had built in Boulder, how I could really take that magic mm-hmm. and sort of repurpose it in New York. And when I was struggling with how do I approach the this, like I'm not a New Yorker, I've never lived in New York. Right. How do I take the huggy, lovey, <laughs> the world is wonderful, give first atmosphere right. of Boulder and really turn that into something positive and not not critical in New York. And when I was asking around for people that might help me navigate through that 
and I had asked you some questions and you just spent an hour talking to me about how New Yorkers think and how to best navigate New York. And, and, um, that 2013 class in New York has, um, companies like blue core in it and plated in it. And a bunch of really great companies have come out of that program. Mm. And I really attest that to the guidance that I got from you oh, on how to navigate. Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> and your big concern about coming on the show is I was going to make you cry. Now you're going to make me cry. I'm not worried about you making me cry. Cause I already know that's happen. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that was, um, that was, that was the, my first exposure to you. Uh, and, um, and it was really helpful and I think that program and the mentorship program that we built around that New York program um, just really was impactful to New York. Yeah. And I attribute a lot of that to you helping me really think through how to uh, get everybody rowing the same direction. Wow. that that I'm glad I had that memory. <laughs> <laughs> as partial as it was. Um, well, thank you again for, for that, and thank you for coming on the show. And I, I know that, that some of this came out of the fact that um, um, we sort of were, were bouncing around different ideas about things that might be um, helpful for you to talk through. And um, why don't you speak to that? What would be helpful in this time? Because, you know, as we were starting to say, even off off the recording, there's an opportunity in this conversation to to spend a little bit of quiet time, slow time, mm -hmm. if you will, uh, where you get to kind of hang out with big issues and hang out with those issues with uh, with a kind of uh, gentleness around it. Yeah. So what would be helpful to talk through? Well, I, the thing that we had sort of talked about right before we started mm -hmm. recording was this notion of the space between stimulus and response. Mm -hmm. And that, that, um, that, that space for me has been a really interesting space to be introspective. Mm -hmm. I come from a very large, big fat Greek family. Mm -hmm. And as most Greeks will attest, they're very mm -hmm. emotional and very emotionally driven mm -hmm. and their, their joys are very, very high and their angers are very, very high and voices are always raised. In fact, when I was in college, I was dating a guy and brought him home to meet my parents. And at the end of the weekend, and we had a great time. I mean, everybody was having a great time and hanging out. And at the end of the weekend, I said, so what'd you think of my family? And he said, everyone's so mad at each other all the time. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was trying to think in my head, when was anybody mad at each other? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that anyone's mad. It was that everybody was yelling. Yeah. So that's because you're Greek and you always yell. So anyway, this, this notion of... Mm -hmm. um, that space in between stimulus and response has been mm -hmm. really interesting for um, for me to observe when mm -hmm. when I get upset or when I get excited or when I get angry or when I get scared, and then try to mm -hmm. sort of piece together a story about why those things happen. And that's um, been a, and actually like something that really started me down this journey was it, you had mentioned Carrie. Carrie and Kirsten Berry yeah. was the boxing. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the the corner boxing gym where we both train at. But say, yeah, say more. Yeah, when you're when you're boxing and somebody is trying to punch you in the face. In the face, <laughs> right. you have this reaction, which is right. a very natural reaction. Yeah. Which is to, you know, get out of the way. But if you're not thoughtful about thoughtful's not the exact right word, but if you're not um if you can't drill into yourself to be present enough to react in the right way, 
in that situation, then you, you get punched in the face. Yeah, well, it's funny. You're, yeah, you're reminding me, even though we could sort of play with the quote um, between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our choice and our freedom, which, as I have come to understand, is not from Viktor Frankl, but in fact, I forget who it said, but somebody describing Vic, Viktor Frankl's work. Anyway, the other quote that pops in is actually a poster that uh, Carrie has up in the gym, which is, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the oh, face. Right. <laughs> I think that's, that's Mike right. Tyson. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, in a sense, the, the, the stimulus that you're talking about is the punch in the face, right? That, uh, yeah, and that one, was in, that one was interesting, though, because it took a very, like, visceral and physical mm-hmm. um, activity, mm-hmm. but then you extract out of that into, like, everyday interactions. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was through boxing that, and, if, you know, for the record, like, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a boxer. I go to a boxing gym. I've watched you. You are a boxer. (laughs) I go to a boxing gym for workouts. Carrie is still trying to get me back in the ring. Yeah. Um, But but you realize that you have these very automatic responses in the ring that are sometimes the wrong response. Right. And and so to to start to be conscious of what you're doing in that moment um, in the boxing ring is very advantageous because you can learn how to dodge a punch. You can learn how to be on offensive right back at the same time. But really what, what I liked about boxing was taking that out of boxing and applying it to every day. And you can't get that kind of practice mm. every day unless you're in the boxing ring. So, yeah, let's, let's play with this because I, th- I think the connection between stimulus response, your question about that, your question about presence, your question about reaction and the link to boxing, I think, is really interesting. And we and we were just down a path of 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 being introduced. And how did you find the connection to the corner? Was it David Mandel or it was? Friend? Yeah, it was David Mandel. Actually, uh-huh. he'd been trying to get me to go for probably about a year. Uh huh. And I went to I went to like an intro class that they had, and I was at the time I was looking for inspiration yep. in, my, in my workout. And he was like, nothing is inspiring like being punched in the face. And I was like, I have no interest. In being no in interest in being yeah. punched in the face. And I have even less interest in punching somebody in the face. Like that just doesn't sound inspiring to me. Yeah. But um, I, so I went to one of the intro classes and the intro class was okay. But what what happened was David really talked me into doing the founder fights right. thing. And and he, he talked me into it because he made it sound like it was going to be fun. Right. I should have known better. Right. Um, now, just to, to, to be clear, Founder Fights is a charity event that um, The Corner runs where founders and others connected to the startup scene here in, in Boulder actually climb into the ring and punch each other. <laughs> um, and I agreed to do it and then bailed. Um, <laughs> it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But um, but anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it was the, the way that it was presented to me was... It's for charity. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's doing it is new. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And so I had painted this picture in my head of like of silliness. Mm-hmm. Let you know we're going to get in there. We're going to be awkward. Kind we're of Buster be, Keaton, Charlie yeah. Chaplin throwing things yes. around. Not really. Not real it, boxing. Actually, this was real boxing. Not real boxing. So I had painted this image in my head, and and so I committed to doing it. Um, I think I made the mistake of committing via Twitter. 
Mm. which was dumb. I remember that now. And then like the next day, the Denver post, I think it was the Denver post yeah. ran an article about founder fights and right. then said that I was one of the people fighting right. in it. Right. And I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess I'm really doing this. So, all right, this is interesting. I better get into the gym. And the first day I walked in, I was like, Oh, Oh God. Right. Oh God. Right. What have I gotten? My, this is legitimate boxing. Yeah. What have I gotten myself into? Yeah. And I, I, but I couldn't bring myself to quit. Mm. Like I committed publicly. Mm. Um, there was an article written about it. Right. Right. I so you were kind of trapped. So, I so I, the reason that popped into my head was that I remember running into you in the gym and realizing that you had signed up and you were doing that. And I'm sure in one of our conversations. Um, I may have said something like this, but I, I remember saying, cause I, cause I've in one form or another been doing kinds of boxing for many years. I remember thinking, this is going to be so good for her. <laughs> Not the founder fights per, per se, but getting Nicole a little bit out of her head. Mm. And really more fully into her body. Does that have any resonance? Um, I am in my head too much, but I don't know what it means to be in my body. Well, when you're throwing a punch, yeah, or when you're and and you're blocking, right? And when you're dodging, you're in your body. This is true. I mean, you can't. You you don't have time to react. I think. It's interesting. I mean, I've I've been an athlete much of my life, so ah, so right. very like right. naturally right. physical. So, that, so, right. So, so getting into that mode is, was actually familiar for you. Yeah, but I think what was interesting was, I mean, I'm I I process and process and process and spin and analyze and come at things from yeah. That's what I was from multiple about. different directions, right? And the thing that boxing boxing does not let you do that. There's no time. There's you will no get time. punched in the face. But the intensity of the focus yes. that you have when you're boxing, there is n- I used to rock climb, and one of the things I liked about rock yeah. climbing was the focus. When you're on the wall, there's nothing else that's going through your mind. You're not thinking about your to-do list. I mean, you're one, you're like making sure that you've got an, your next hand placement, your next foot placement. Boxing was like that times 2,000. Right, right. Um, and, and I like that because of the intense focus. And I liked the, tr- I, like there's mental training that goes into into boxing that I, um, training is maybe the wrong word. I think maybe if you're at a professional level, then of course there's mental training, but at an, at a, at first timer, you're just dealing with fear at such a, at a, as a physical level, yeah. like you can feel the fear in your body. It's not just in your heart or in your throat. Mm-hmm. It's like every cell in your body is telling you to run mm-hmm. and you don't run. And I like that. I like being pushed to the edge of what, I feel like I'm capable of doing. So let's go back to the original question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stimulus and response. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so the normal programming, the amygdala based programming, the part of the brain whose sole purpose is to keep you alive says fight or flee. And I'm nodding. Yes. <laughs> you're nodding. Yeah. Yes. And, and there's this moment and people would, people who don't box or don't do a physical activity 
that forces that level of concentration or even meditation or you know some forms of yoga you know i've even done dance therapy right people who aren't experiencing that are not would might presume that what's going on in in a sparring match is that the amygdala's fight reflex has taken over but it's actually not it's not no yeah your 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 flea reflex is still <laughs> your flea ref- so you're in this place where you're not fleeing nor and i know this sounds contradictory nor are you fighting in that reflexive manner you're actually focused and strategic mm-hmm. it's very strategic it's very it's in fact it's it's what you're doing is neurologically and let's hope that there isn't brain damage right as we box but neurologically you're activating the prefrontal cortex and you're taking you're you're, you're basically uh, giving up the amygdala hijack well so actually uh, you're uh, just to get into yep. into neurology for a moment i think your prefrontal cortex is all about rational thought right correct but the problem with boxing is you don't have time to have rational thought well so you're actually in the limbic system yeah so and that's the thing that i liked about it and the the stimulus and response because in everyday life when you're sitting there yes. and, you, and you get angry and your response is to yell, but you need to insert something something in between the thing that got you angry yes. and you're yelling. Yes. And that how do you practice that? Uh, you don't practice that. You can't practice that. I disagree with you. I think you can practice that. Oh, so that's what I liked about boxing is because boxing felt like it gave me that. Practice. And that is a practice. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's maybe a, a really whacked version of practice, but okay. Well, but 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 anything. So so you're so you're right. So yeah. so neurologically, there are actually several uh, brain structures that exist. Let's call it between the pre-evolutionary part of the brain. Yeah which is rooted in the amygdala, and the post-evolutionary part of the brain, its fullest expression is the prefrontal cortex. But there is this intuitive part of the brain Mm -hmm. that is non-fight or flight, Mm -hmm. but is also not overdeveloped strategic. Right. And that's the part of the brain that we're really focused on here. Yeah. And that, interestingly, perhaps you'll find it interesting, that's the part of the brain that relaxes and takes over when one is meditating. That's the part of the brain that's like, uh, is aware, if you will, of the fight or flight impulse, the the, the reactive brain. And it's part, it's aware of the over analytical brain, but it's not giving into either side of that. It's just awareness. It's just awareness. Yeah. It's fully focused, present awareness. I'm still like, as I, I mean, I've just gotten into meditation maybe in the last year Uh and starting it was, felt like an effort and futility. I mean, I just sit there and spin on all the 10,000 things I should be doing and stuff that was going on. And, um, and as I sort of proceed more into my own journey of meditation, Mm -hmm. I, I am appreciating that more, but What's what I'm finding is is that the thing that is helping is 
is that awareness of in the moment reaction to things. Yes. And if I can make that space, that space between the stimulus and response or that between the action and the reaction, whatever, if I can make that space bigger. That's right. So I'm still in the like, oh, I'm aware I'm mad, but I can't stop myself from yelling. Yeah. But I've recognized that I'm mad. So like expanding that space to go, huh, why am I mad? Yes. Or why am I upset? Or why am I triggered? Yeah. And and then be able to stop the reaction from coming out. Yeah. I don't want to be a slave to my reactions. I think that's Yeah. Well and 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 I'll give I'll give you a little story that uh may be helpful in in understanding how to widen that gap. Yeah. I'd like right. it. Yeah. So and I've told this story in the podcast before. I remember one time I was sitting on the cushion and um it, it you know, the session was going fine. I, I was just sitting and all of a sudden I had this wave of anxiety come up. And anxiety is a very particular kind of fear. It's 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 a it in my experience it's a, it's a fear about the future. It's a fear about something that might happen, as opposed to say um, fearfully replaying what happened or ruminating and feeling terrible about a decision that you made in the past. That's that's a different kind of experience. And so um, I was sitting there and there's just a wave after wave of anxiety came up. And because I think because I was at this point several years into my practice, I was able to just notice it. Noticing the impulse and the impulse that arose was to try to figure out why I was feeling anxious. And then I noticed something really important, which was my mind started to create stories about things that I should worry about. <laughs> like, huh. I'm going to, like, tomorrow this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I could almost watch my own mind trying to find its way out of the discomfort of the anxiety by supplying reasons why I should be worried so that I could then make them go away. Okay. And not feel anxious. Right. Interesting. Right. Now you can sort of see how perverse this yeah. is because the mind is kind of trying to say to itself, oh, that's an awful feeling. Why am I feeling that way? If I can understand why I'm feeling that way, then I can eliminate why I'm feeling right. that way. It's perfectly logical, except it doesn't work because what ends up happening is the mind starts to feel more and more anxious. So then I said to myself, well, what does this anxiety smell like? Smell. And the reason that that was a helpful question was because my prefrontal cortex, which was trying to figure its way out of the anxiety, couldn't answer that question. (laughs) There is no answer to that question. Right, of course. And the more I realized that, and there here, this is all happening in the space of sitting on a cushion. I'm sitting there and I started to like lighten up. Interesting. And then the anxiety passed. Interesting. Right. So, so, so here I am, there's a stimulus, something caused the anxiety to come up. And, 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 you know, after that, I began to realize that, that anxiety sometimes will just naturally arise. Mm -hmm. It's part of our wiring. 
Um, I think I think back to to you know pre hominid humans and and you know just the fear of staying alive was built into our biology. Yeah. And so here we are, you know, something's happening. Yeah, you need that. Right? And yet, if we jump too quickly into the response, boom, we're actually not, our experience of being human becomes more painful. And by interrupting that flow, I was able to just sort of widen the experience a bit and that space became wider and deeper and much more pleasant and and you can i mean i would imagine that you can learn about yourself more in those context in that context well that's yeah and i think that 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 that's the opportunity i think i think the the post the experience of that you know you've come to one of our boot camps you know that that we often speak about this notion of resiliency mm-hmm Resiliency is the capacity to recover when punched in the face. <laughs> that's, that's really resiliency, right? What I have found is that when we enhance the capacity to widen the gap between stimulus and response, what ends up happening is our ability to be resilient to the punches in the face enhances interesting i haven't thought about it from a resiliency perspective i mean the 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 two things that i've noticed the most is one um you you avoid problems and Mm -hmm. and what i'm i can use a really simple but but Mm -hmm. um but maybe poignant example which is last night my husband my husband's in a band and um, he loves music. Obviously, mm. he's in, he's actually in two bands, mm. and so he was he had band practice last night, and the guys were downstairs and they were practicing, and he was upstairs, and he had music going upstairs, and the the cacophony mm. between the band practicing downstairs and the music that he's playing upstairs, like triggers this. Mm. It triggers this like anger mm. in my brain. Like stop it! It hurts my brain. And I realized right before I yelled at him that yelling like I was like wow, I'm angry. And then I just stopped and I said, Hey honey, just so you know, it really hurts my brain. We have conflicting sounds. Can we just try to keep it to one sound? And he was like, sure. No problem. He turned the stereo off. So if I had yelled at him, it would have turned into an argument. Right. Right. So like I saved, um, a negative interaction between my husband and I. And I would argue you turned it into a positive interaction because you taught your brain something really important. Right. Which, Which is, is that Mark actually, Mark is your husband's right. name, right? Mark yes. will actually respond. And he's wonderful about stuff like that, right? But, but he didn't know. What was, let me bring your attention to this. What was, in my mind, the key moment? It was funny because I started to yell. Yep. I literally like opened my mouth to yep. yell. Yep. And I recognized at that moment, I recognized two things. One I was angry. Yes. And the second thing was yelling was counterproductive. Yes. So, but the first thing was, I am angry. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of a silly thing to be angry about, like, but it, whatever it triggers me. Who cares? Whatever, yeah. The key thing was not necessarily to, 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 to step into it, yeah. but I have a story for you that, that's very similar. My middle child's name is Emma, and 
My children are probably my favorite human beings in the entire planet. They're extraordinary humans. And Emma was a teenager at the time, and she, um, uh, I remember her, we had this rule that if she was going to be home before, uh, if she was going to, it was on Friday afternoons after school, um, she was probably in middle school, maybe first year or second year of high school. If she was going to be home uh, after six o'clock, she had to call and let us know what she was doing. So six o'clock rolled around, she didn't call. Seven o'clock rolled around, she didn't call. I'm calling her cell phones, like, where is she? Where is she? And uh, finally, I got a hold of her brother, and I said, I don't know how you're going to do it, but find your sister. And within five minutes, she called. So they must have activated the the, the (laughs) bat signals among teenagers, (laughs) right? right? And she calls up, and I said, where are you? And I'm in, you know, my friend. I was like, stay right there. I'm coming to get you. And I was fucking furious. And I get in the car and I'm driving there and I'm stopped at a red light and I'm like steaming. And I said to myself in a similar fashion, what are you angry about? Yeah. And then the voice that came back to me was, I'm scared shit. As soon as I allowed myself to say, I am scared, the anger went away. It was like the part of me that wanted to make sure that the fear was being paid attention to, right? All of a sudden, the anger just sort of dissipated, and I could feel the fear, which I didn't actually want to feel. I didn't want to feel all of the fearful thoughts of what had happened to my child, right? So I'm, dri- I'm sitting in the car. I'm stopped at the red light. The, the light turns green. I drive. I go, go to her friend's house. I pull up. She comes out. She's now scared because she's heard the tone of my voice. And I, I didn't yell at my kids a lot, you know. And I come out and, and I said, honey, please don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> and you know what? She never did. Yeah. Well, she understood the seriousness of it, too. Because she understood I was yeah. afraid. Whereas if I had come out and started swinging with that anger, which was really a protective measure against the feelings of yeah. fear, right? And it was literally the red light moment that gave me the space between stimulus and response that allowed me to just pause. And breathe. Yeah, right? I, I mean, if you think back to what we do at boot camps, whether it's with our red, yellow, green exercise, which is to sort of just identify where you are, or where we encourage people. It's like, how are you? Remember my famous question mm-hmm. at the start of the boot camp? How are you? A question that takes a day to answer. A question that takes a day to answer, <laughs> to answer properly. Yeah. What, we're, what I'm trying to do at that moment is encourage that self-reflection of where you got last night, where you said, I'm angry. And that's actually not going to help me get what I want, Mm -hmm. which is understanding from a man I love. And a little quiet, please. (laughs) Right? Whereas the first, the Greek response, if you will, would have been, I would like it quiet, so I'm going to yell. (laughs) Counterintuitive, yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, the the response that we always give in the family when I was growing up was, it was loud voices. I mean, that was it. Yeah. 
yelling about everything. It could even be happy yelling, but still yelling, always yelling, always yelling. yelling. And, um, and, but it was always, always driven by whatever emotion you were feeling at that moment. And when, but without a consciousness of what that emotion That's right. Is. That's right. And and I found that to be an incredible disservice to to me and to those that that know me and love me and work with me. Right. Right? Because um you you, you know it gets people on the it gets people on the defensive. It it creates barriers between you and them and those barriers can be often hard to repair once. Well, once remember you... too the, the 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 operative question you've hung around with me enough times to know this question, right? The question I I I learned from my therapist, which was how am I complicit in creating the conditions mm-hmm. I say I don't want? Right? And because there's a distance, forget the gap for a moment that we've been talking about, because there's a distance between my experience as, uh, in, in the moment. And my awareness of the experience in that moment, because there's a distance there, I am grasping at, at different uh, behaviors. I might, I might hire somebody that um, uh, exacerbates a problem for me, or I might uh, cause the company to run out of money um, unconsciously. All because I'm, I'm really disconnected from the experience of how I really am. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I can bring my awareness back to how am I, how are you? Not only are we creating the space to widen, right, so that we then get to choose the emotional reaction. You still could have yelled at Mark last night. <laughs> That may have been the only way in which you might have been heard, but then it would have been strategic application right. of your authority and agency, not uh, an unstrategic, flailing, spontaneous reaction. And if you notice what I did, I subtly shifted us into management yeah. issues. The... We can think that the goal is to widen the gap. And in in a sense, it is. But the real goal is to create a more resilient experience. And one of the tools is that self-awareness. I am angry. Or in my case, I am afraid. And then I get to choose there. And that creates the gap. Because in my case, my anger dropped away. And I think in your case, once you sort of mark, just flip a switch or lower a volume wait a minute, I don't have to be angry anymore. Yeah, it was even before that, just seeing his reaction to my comment. Just seeing his reaction Mm -hmm. to the comment. In fact, when he looked at you and saw your reaction, what feeling did he have for you? He felt felt bad that I felt bad. He didn't want to instill. Why doesn't he want to instill whatever? Yeah, like, well, he didn't want me to feel angry. And because he, he loves you. Yeah, because he loves me. That's right. Right. Your ability, not only did you create a gap so that you didn't have a reaction that would have exacerbated any tension in the relationship, but you actually gave him space to be able to demonstrate yeah. that he loves you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because when, like sometimes I've been in, you know, I've been in meetings and I'll, I'll feel this triggering mm. and it will be 
my place at that moment in time to say something. Mm. And I've always struggled with that. And the way Mm. that I've been learning to deal with it is to start um, to, to respond in the situation by asking a question. Yeah. Beautiful. But trying, the problem is, is that I, I, I can sometimes weave a little, um, pointed in your question, passive aggressiveness into my questions. Maybe is the thing I would say, but, um, like I'm, I'm working on that. Right. And, and I think just, um, the awareness is everything is of once you can be aware. Okay. So let me give you another tool there. I love it. I think asking the question is the right strategy. And again, this is something that we, we, we work on in boot camp. Remember the notion of open, honest questions. I don't know if you remember those. Yeah, I, I do. Right. So an open, honest question is a question that you don't know the answer. To. Yeah. That's not a leading question. It's or not have... a leading and it's not one with an agenda. And it's also not no a judgment. yes or no question. Yep. Right? I'm not good at these questions. These questions require really like they require thoughtfulness, or at least for me. Well, they require pausing. Yeah. Right. Open, honest questions are really powerful. Now, the most koan-like, and a koan is an imponderable question. It's a question that to which there is almost no answer. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Right? <laughs> that is a classic, right, imponderable koan. Uh, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Right? Now, there's a philosophical implication there, which is if there's no listener, is there a sound? Forget that question. Right. The purpose of those kinds of questions are very similar to the purpose of an open, honest question. It's a little different. The, the, the koan structure is really designed to interrupt, to do what I infected. What does, what does anxiety smell like? Right? It's really designed to interrupt the reactive response so that we're, we're, we're thrust back onto ourselves and thrust back into our experience instead of this externalized experience of outward, 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 you. If only you were different, then I would feel better internally. Right. Right. The open, honest question is really designed to, um, to really seek space for the truest answers to, to emerge. And so I think your impulse to ask a question rather than to pointedly make an observation or to quote, as you put it, my role, I'm going to step into my role. I'm going to tell the truth because that's when Nicole does. She tells the (laughs) truth and you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Yes. (laughs) If we can frame it, then what we do is we allow, just like you gave Mark the space to demonstrate yet again that he loves you. And he cares about your happiness. If we can give the space to our colleagues to demonstrate that they are trying or where they're lost or where they're struggling or what their wishes are, then the group as a whole starts to arrive at this place of respect. You know, this reminds me of the second piece that you were talking, that you wanted to talk through, which is the notion of trust, you know, within the workplace. And, and, um, 
what I often say to folks is that trust is not what the trust is not the goal. Trust is the outcome. Trust is what happens when we create a safe, respectful, open, honest workplace. See, everybody says, we want trust. And I understand why they want trust. But they're aiming for the wrong thing. If I can create a place where the gap between stimulus and response is wide enough that I can turn around and demonstrate to you that I care about your feelings and I'll lower the volume, then my abil- your ability to trust that, you ha- that I care about your feelings goes up because I've just demonstrated it. Whereas if I say to you forcefully, trust me. Well, no one will do it. The, it not yeah. that. When we say to somebody, trust me, it's almost like our president saying, believe me. Right. <laughs> right? The impulse is, I'm not going to believe a fucking word you have to say after you say, believe me. Yeah. It's like, trust me. Right? Whereas if, we, if I demonstrate the capacity, so, so that open, honest question says, you're accepting of whatever my response is. A question that goes something like, how would it feel, what would it be like for you if you weren't the one in the room to have that responsibility? What would that feel like? You know, the responsibility we were talking before to say the truth or to name it. It would feel awesome. Oh, wow. I mean... I often feel the need to say the truth because I feel like nobody else is. Uh, it would feel amazing. Uh, and how do you let? I don't do. I don't do well with elephants in the room. Right. I I also grew up with. In my view, I grew up with lots of elephants in the room, not named, and it was awful for me. And I in this moment, just really relate to your awesome reaction <laughs> to the notion of the what for me feels like a burden of having to be the one to name the elephant in the room. Does that resonate with you? Burden isn't the word. It would be a compulsion. Uh, and it's because um, are we are we lying to ourselves? Uh, are we like I, the facade drives me insane. Yeah. And when there's an elephant in the room and nobody's talking about it, I have a compulsion mm. to tear down the facade. Mm. And so if other people are speaking a truth, mm. then I feel like that would be a gigantic relief because we're not lying to ourselves. Mm. We are having a conversation about what's really going on. So go back to what happened last night. Are there lessons in the experience? The entire arc of the experience, the cacophony, the noise downstairs, the noise upstairs, the sounds, the sounds, the realization, I am angry, the pause before reacting, the reframing of what you were saying, Mark's first reaction and then his action. 
Are there lessons in that? Well, maybe that example is not a great one because it's such a small one. Oh, I think it's powerful, but go ahead. But I think, you know, there's this, when I sat down and thought about why I was angry, I mean, one is just like the level of noise is driving my brain crazy. But you have this anger that if somebody knows that something drives you crazy and yet it continues to go on. Yeah. They should be more sensitive. Like I was mad. I think the reason I was mad was because he, my husband, knows that that drives me insane, and wasn't and he wasn't doing anything about it. And so it was showing me. Um, well, the story you told yourself was that the, you didn't care. The and but I realized that that wasn't true. Yes, it's not that he didn't. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he actually is oblivious. He he doesn't he, he hear. Do, he wasn't. He, literally doesn't hear it. Because he's not you. Right. It's not that he doesn't care about you. Right. It's that he didn't have that experience. And so remember, one of the things to hold on to is sometimes part of what's happening with the elephants in the room is that you and I are seeing elephants that other people don't see. Right. Not be, not what we the story we tell ourselves, which is they know the elephants in the room, they're just not saying something. Hmm. They in fact may not see them. Now there are all sorts of complicated reasons why the person may not see what's in front of them. It's a defense mechanism. They're blind, or they're they're caught up in something else. Or it's not as big an issue for them as it is for us, right? But you did something really powerful, whereas you chose a path that lay between ignoring the elephant in the room and reacting and naming the elephant in the room. Right. What's the matter with you? Don't you care about my feelings? Right. <laughs> and the result was he was able to demonstrate that he actually cares about your feelings. It's just he's seeing things differently. So it's it's interesting to think about that in in sort of the work context because, um, I mean, I can think of times when I'm like, how are we not talking about right. we're talking about this and we should be talking about right. this other thing and how are we not how are we not talking about that? Right. So I'm going to give you a phrase to hold on to. Mm-hmm. You know that phrase that exists in your brain when you're in the middle of that meeting and it's quote obvious. Yeah. It's actually not, it's not necessarily obvious. So therefore the others non seeing of the elephant in the room is not willful and therefore not as threatening. It still may be threatening because there may be a threat that they're not seeing, but it's not intended to gaslight us or to make us feel bad. Hmm. And how do we know that they, that they're, how do we know that they don't see it? Like you you said that it will confirm by their reaction. Right. How did you know that Mark wasn't willfully playing music in two different places, creating a cacophony. How did you know that? How was it confirmed for you? Okay, I see your point. By his reaction. By his reaction. I see your point. Mm -hmm. Which then 
And then that gets internalized as, wait a minute, the next time the story arises in my head that he's doing this purposefully, I can remember that last time. You know what that is called? Trust. Yeah. Interesting. It's called the benefit of the doubt. Oh, I'll bet you he doesn't even realize that my brain is hurting. Yeah. I see your point. So by not, I mean, so by gentle probing or Mm. what did you call it? You called it non, what was the question? Open, honest questions. Open, honest questions. Honest. The honesty comes in not having an answer to your question. Yeah. Right? So There's no judgment in it. So so last night you could have said in a pretend dishonest question, what are you thinking, Mark? Yep. (laughs) Okay? That's not an honest question. Yeah. Right? He He might have turned out music then. I could say, are you really okay with listening to both of this, like... Right. That's Correct not a question. At the same time. That's actually an accusation yeah. and an attack. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. But if after the emotions died down and you were able to say something like, Mark, what what is the experience for you hearing two sources of music from two different places? And you were truly curious about that. Mm-hmm. Because that's actually a difference in the way your brains are wired. Yep. He can handle two different sources of, of data, music data coming in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And for you, that's just a completely different experience. I can't handle that. I can't, I can't be in a room with people listening to their radio while watching TV. Yeah. You know those times? Yeah. Like, I can't handle that. No, I can't either. I can barely handle one of those, right. let alone two. I was, that, was the, that was actually the source of our conversation last right. night. So. Right. So I guess to, to start to close it out, the, the gap, if we, can, if we can marry the self-awareness, I am angry, in the gap, then we start to create, and we start to, to create open, honest questions. Why am I, you know, what's happening here? We start to create this sense of trust, which actually leads to a resiliency, right? What you both did last night in your action, reaction, and his reaction and action, what you both did was fed the better parts of the relationship so that the next time there's a stimulus, there's a possibility of giving him the benefit of the doubt and the ability to take a punch in the face. The relationship's ability to take a punch in the face gets strengthened. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And like learning how to work through practicing that. That's right. And that's, that's tricky. That's right. But start small. Mm -hmm. It's the noticing it. I I really congratulate you for the, I am angry versus anger. Right. (laughs) So, so I want to thank you for, for, for this conversation. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. It is. It's, it's, you know, like I said, as I work through practicing that and being aware, just learning how to be aware so yeah. you can, you can practice that Yeah, is, um, is I think just huge steps towards my own development. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the goal is the experience of being human yeah. is a little bit less painful yeah. A little bit more fun. Right. That's really what we're going for. Here. Well, if I can avoid 
conflict and in the process strengthen a relationship. I mean, that's positive all the way around. Amen. And learn about myself too. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. CEOs who coach are more effective leaders. The effectiveness of a leader is measured by the output of the team they lead. With directive leadership, that output is limited to the thinking of the CEO. When a CEO learns fundamental coaching skills, they unlock the thinking of their entire team, resulting in a higher performing and a more scalable team. In a one-day workshop at the Reboot Learning Lab in San Francisco, You'll learn the fundamentals of communication grounded in neuro-linguistic programming. Join us to transform how you listen, ask questions, and learn to bring the best out of those you lead. To see all of our 2018 Coaching 101 dates, head to reboot.io slash coaching101.